Uh, my name is Frank, and I've been a member at the Hallows for five years now. Um, and just this week, uh, along with Jake, um, I've become an elder here as well. Um, we spent a good chunk of our first ever elders meeting uh, on our knees, which was tricky for George because he's got bad knees, tricky for Jake because he's got a bad back. But we spent some good time on our knees, arm in arm, praying for you guys and praying for our church. And I've also been in prayer all week that, that God would help us with this text for today. So if you're new here or you're visiting us, we've been going through the book of Luke over the last few months. And recently we've been going through an extended teaching session from Jesus. Luke 12 verse 1 says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people are gathered, he began to, hit, to say to his disciples first. So in his, in his wisdom, Jesus sees this as the right time to start laying down some harder truths to his disciples and the, and the gathered crowds. I think it's fair to say that the teachings of Jesus that we've explored over the last few weeks, they're some of the hardest teachings found anywhere in the New Testament. And I think it's also fair to say that as a church, we've been through some really hard things recently. And maybe some of us are feeling the effects of those things. In light of this, it would be a fair question to ask, are the words that we're studying here in Luke 12 really the right words for us as a church right now? And, and to that, I would say that as a church, we mostly opt to preach in an expositional way, which means that we choose a book of the Bible and then we preach through it verse by verse from beginning to end. Commitment to expositional preaching means that over the long run, we get to sit under the whole counsel of God. And that leads to maturity and a well-rounded understanding of God. Hebrews 5.14 says, says this about the harder pastures that we've been looking at. It says that these pastures are solid food, which is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So we want to humbly wrestle with tough texts together, right? We want to ask the Holy Spirit to remove anything that's getting in the way of us having a clear view of God and to change our hearts to be more receptive to him. With that said, teachings like the ones found in Luke chapter 12 need to be handled with great care, with humility, with gentleness. Preaching a difficult text requires the preacher to be mindful of the congregation, what they're going through, making every effort to speak words that are both true to scripture and said in love. Some Bibles have Luke 12 verse 1 to 13 verse 9 under the heading warnings and encouragements. The text we looked at last week and our text for this week are certainly warnings, perhaps the most severe warnings in all of the New Testament. Yet we must remember that Jesus never said a single word that wasn't loving. My wife Debs and I went whitewater rafting in Mexico earlier on this year, and I went into it thinking that I would be fine. Because most of my hobbies are dangerous hobbies, hence the missing teeth. And I also spend a lot of time in waterfalls and rivers. So I went in there thinking it was just going to be a walk in the park. 
We had a total of 16 rapids to navigate on our route. The first one went okay, but on the second one, I got thrown out of the boat, dragged under the boat, and then popped up spluttering in the white water. Thankfully, I was pulled back into the boat, and as I was trying to steady myself, one of the safety guides in a kayak paddles up to the boat. And he looked me dead in the eye and he said, that was only a class two rapid. All the rest of the rapids today are class three. He said, you've got to concentrate. You've got to pay attention. Ouch, right? His words were like a slap in the face to me. I felt humbled. And I was also terrified that I would fall out of the boat on one of these bigger rapids. Why didn't he tell me that it was all going to be okay? Why was he so stern with me and I was already feeling so vulnerable? I thought what I needed was a pat on the back and reassurance that it wouldn't happen again. But instead, he told me it was only going to get more dangerous. And if I wasn't vigilant, there was every chance that I would fall in again. But did I fall in again? Not once. I was laser focused for the rest of the trip. I was concentrating. The guide's words were tough to hear. But his words were said so that I didn't put myself in a life-threatening position. His words were said out of care for my well-being and for my enjoyment of that day. We should keep in mind that even Jesus' most shocking words all flow out of a place of profound love. Let's remember this truth as we turn to our passage for today. Before we explore the text for today, I want to touch on the passage from last week. And I want to do this for three reasons. The first reason is that last week's text and this week's text go hand in hand with each other. Second reason is that James, who is our preacher from last week, isn't a member of our church and so doesn't know the majority of us and the season that we are in together as a church. And thirdly, though James made some good points, some of his application points were not in line with what we want to teach here at the Hallows Church and left some key points requiring further attention. And I just want to say here that we have got in touch with James, so um, we wanted to love him well in that, and it's not like if he was watching now that this would be the this would be the first that he would hear of it. And we also want to say, you know, it's, it's tricky, really tough going into a context where you don't know people. Um, I, I used to um, preach for a charity where I would go into schools all over the UK preaching the gospel. It's really hard when you don't have that context. So we just want to reaffirm our love for James, reaffirm um, the partnership in the gospel that we do have. So let me read both passages Last week's text should be, should be coming up in red here. So it says this. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were, it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there'll be five divided, three against two and two against three. It will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, 
mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret the present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you, turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you in prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Oh, Father God, I just pray for your help uh, unpacking this text. Um, I thank you so much, Lord, for the the way we get to sit under the whole counsel of God and have a well-rounded view of you. Um, Praise you for that, Lord. And I just really pray that you'd uh, go to work on our hearts today in the way that only you can. Amen. So out of all the hard-hitting passages in Luke, Luke 49 to 53 is probably the hardest. In my younger years, this text actually caused me to recoil. I could not believe that a passage like this was in the Bible. I always thought it sounded so contradictory to other things Jesus said about the reason for his coming, such as, I came that they may, ha- they may have life and have it abundantly, John 10 verse 10. And the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, Luke 19 verse 10. I remember thinking all those years ago that I'd love to hear a sermon on this text. Funny then, that I actually made a scheduling error. I thought I was supposed to be preaching last week. And I went away and did quite a lot of prayer and study. And then I found out on the Wednesday that it was actually someone else. But obviously, God God was already doing something in my heart at that point. And thankfully, he's replaced my confusion with this text with a deep appreciation of it and for what Jesus says here. My goal goal here isn't to preach a full sermon on verses 49 to 53, because I want to give a good chunk of time unpacking our text for today. But I would like to make a comment on the baptism Jesus mentions here. And I would also like to comment on the nature of the division that Jesus speaks of, because those are the two areas requiring clarification from last week. Regarding his baptism, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus had already been baptized in water. We read about that in Luke chapter 3 a few months ago. So the baptism that Jesus speaks of here is of a different kind altogether. And in a rare glimpse into Jesus' emotional life, we learn that the thought of this baptism is deeply distressing to him. The baptism Jesus is talking of here is his atoning sacrifice on the cross. It is his baptism of fire. As God would pour out the just just punishment for the sins of the world onto Jesus. So that all who put their faith in him could be spared the same judgment. In his baptism in water, as he came up out of the water, 
He heard a voice from heaven. It was his heavenly father saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. In his baptism of fire, Jesus was fully immersed in the fire of God's judgment and he heard only silence from heaven crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus talks about his baptism of fire and then he goes on to lovingly warn people that he will divide people into two clear groups. Those that call him Lord and those that reject him. Jesus is explaining that following him could lead to division from those that reject him. Like so many things that we go through, Jesus knows exactly what this feels like. In Jesus' early ministry, his own family distanced themselves from him. He was then abandoned by his closest friends. And lastly, he was shut out of his eternal family, the Trinity, as the Father and the Spirit withdrew from Jesus as he was crucified. Jesus knows the pain of division. And we can take comfort knowing that even if it happens to us, he is able to sympathize with us. And he, get this, will never leave or forsake us. We had an old friend at our church in London who randomly turned up on our front, front doorstep. And it, it turned out that upon giving his life to Christ, his parents, who were Muslim, had kicked him out. He spent a month uh, living with Debs and I until he could find somewhere more permanent. Can you imagine if Jesus hadn't warned of this kind of division? Our friend would have been completely unprepared for this painful episode in his life. Jesus knew that for him and for so many others, painful separation from loved ones and friends would be a real possibility. And so he loves us enough to warn us of the cost of following him. Jesus' loving warning about the cost of following him is what provides the context for today's text. What we do with Jesus is a decision that faces every single human being on the planet. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. When we make huge decisions in life, we like to gather the data, right? So we can make an informed decision. You don't want to buy a house and then a few months later realize that the side sewer is completely shot and you're going to have to spend 100 grand fixing it. You don't buy a car only to find that the head gasket fails after driving it 1,000 miles. And in a similar way, if you are here today and you're a seeker, someone who is curious about the Christian faith but who is still on a journey and isn't ready to make the life-upending decision to follow Jesus. A question that I would have imagined has crossed your mind would be, how can I know for sure that Jesus really is who he says he is? And it's precisely that question which Jesus was very likely asked by a member of the crowd after he finished talking about himself being the true divider of all human history. The parallel passage in Matthew 16, 1-4 says that the Pharisees and the Sadducees demanded a sign from Jesus. In Luke's account, he doesn't mention the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
But it is highly likely that someone called out and asked Jesus for a sign to validate the huge claims he was making, as that would explain why Jesus changes the subject and starts talking about the weather. He says this, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? So Jesus, like he often does, gives an unexpected response to the demand for a sign. He starts talking about the weather. Back in my native UK, we love nothing more than to talk about the weather, which is probably why Debs and I so quickly felt at home here in Seattle. However, in both the UK and Seattle, the weather is notoriously hard to predict, isn't it? It's often literally four seasons in one day. You could wake up to dense mist, and then by 2 p.m. it's glorious sun. It could be still as a mill pond on Green Lake one minute, and the next there are four foot high waves. In contrast, the weather in the region that Jesus was teaching was very, very predictable. The Mediterranean Sea lay to the west, which was where all the wet weather came from. So when people saw clouds coming from the west, they knew it was going to rain. To the south lay the Arabian Desert. And so when the south wind blew over all that hot sand, it brought scorching temperatures. The point that Jesus is making is that the people found it easy to read the signs when it came to the weather. Jesus goes on to call them hypocrites because they know how to interpret the clear signs of the weather, but they don't know how to interpret the clear signs of the present time. And that left the crowd wondering, what are the signs of the present time and what do they point to? Put simply, the signs of the present time are the works and teachings of Jesus. Among other miracles, so far in the book of Luke, Jesus has been baptized with a miraculous audible voice from heaven affirming him. He's cleansed a leper, he's healed a paralytic, he's raised a widow's son from the dead, and he's calmed a storm. These signs, taken individually, are proof that Jesus is a very special person, possibly like a prophet from, old, from, from of old. But when you take them all together, the only conclusion is that Jesus is God. Nothing else makes sense of the volume and breadth of his miraculous activity. If the people in the crowd stuck around for the remainder of Jesus' ministry, they would see two more signs that prove once and for all the true identity of Jesus. Firstly, his crucifixion where the sky went dark for three hours from noon till 3 p.m. And then the clincher, his victorious rising from the grave, which was guarded by two Roman soldiers with a massive stone blocking the entrance. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He is saying, just as the clear signs of the sky point to changes in the weather, the clear signs that I have been performing among you and will continue to do so should leave you in no doubt that I am the Messiah, that I am God in human flesh, that I truly am the Savior of the world. Jesus calls the crowds hypocrites 
because they saw all of the signs and yet refused to put their trust in him. And Jesus gives us a window into the human heart here. He is revealing to us that it is possible to know deep down in your heart that Jesus is God, but reject him anyway. In this passage, we do not know what is causing the people to hesitate in embracing Jesus and giving themselves to him. But if we look elsewhere in scripture, we do get a deeper look at what is holding people back. Take Mark 10, verses 17 to 22, for example. It's the story of the rich young ruler. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me disheartened by the saying the rich young ruler went away sorrowful for he had great possessions for the rich young ruler his wealth was too important to him losing his wealth was a line he wouldn't cross he knew deep down that his money would always be more important to him than Jesus and so he went away sorrowful the Apostle Paul gives us another insight into the human condition in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. It says this, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he, he has made. So they are without excuse. Under the grip of sin, human beings are masters at denial. And we suppress the clear signs pointing us to God. Jesus detects this in the hearts of the people in front of him. And, you, and his verdict is, you are hypocrites. You claim to need just one more sign, but if I gave you one more sign, you would simply ask me for another. Nothing I can ever do will convince you because you are not willing to count the cost of following me. Now, let me say at this point, I'm not saying that asking questions and being curious about Jesus is wrong. If you're a seeker here, Curiosity is good. And Jesus never bats away a question with the right motive. Jesus welcomes and invites sincere questions. But there comes a point when every earnest seeker has enough information to make a decision about Jesus. Then it will be a simple question of whether that person is willing to count the cost 
of following Jesus with all that entails. As we saw earlier in the passage, following Jesus may cause us to be cut off from family, friends, and loved ones. Following Jesus is a very costly decision indeed. But we must remember that Jesus describes himself in Matthew 13 as a pearl of great price, which a man found, and knowing how valuable it was, he went and sold all he had to buy it. Truly, Jesus is worth giving up everything for. His value is infinite. But following Jesus is still really tough, especially in contexts where faith in Jesus is controversial or even dangerous. There's a reason why Jesus is so candid in this section of Luke. He wants nobody to go into the Christian life without first counting the cost. Jesus builds on what he said so far with another illustration, this time of a court case. Follow along with me. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you in prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus, the great teacher, tells a story about a person who owes another person a sum of money that they cannot repay. The creditor then takes the matter to court, and so the two of them are on the road together to the courthouse. Jesus then says that it is the wise thing to do for the person in debt to settle with the creditor to avoid the case going to court where the outcome will be a lengthy prison sentence. The spiritual meaning of this illustration isn't hard for us to see. Jesus uses a financial illustration saying that we are all in debt to God. The reason we are all in debt to God is that we are all sinners. Sin is the conscious or or unconscious breaking of the golden rule. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Can you imagine getting a sin statement in the mail? I was thinking about this illustration and what it would be like. I think we'd be reading that statement for months, maybe even years. Not only would that statement include everything we've ever physically done and said that isn't full of love towards God and others, but it would even include every evil thought of which God knows them all. Without exception, everyone who has ever lived on this earth is desperately in debt to God. Worse still, we have absolutely no way of paying off our debt. Even if we committed ourselves to a life of charity and good deeds, even our best works are so often tarnished by selfishness and pride. The Bible teaches that upon death, we will have to stand before Almighty God and give an account for how we have lived our lives. This is what Jesus speaks of here. The courtroom scene that he describes is a picture of the moment 
that we will stand before God, the judge of all the earth. According to Jesus, the judgment will be swift and severe. In Jesus' illustration, the person in debt is put in prison until they have paid all their debt to the last penny. Jesus' words here are a loving warning about the reality of hell. One of the most difficult, difficult doctrines in the Bible, and yet a subject that Jesus talks about more than heaven. What do we learn from Jesus here about hell? Well, firstly, we learn that there is due process. Nobody ends up in hell who doesn't deserve to be there. Some of us might be jaded and suspicious of human justice systems because there is so much crookedness, injustice, and simple human error from the bottom to the top. But God, on the other hand, is the perfect judge. He is the only judge who never pronounces the wrong sentence. He never makes mistakes, never takes a bribe, never has an off day. We will all stand before the perfect judge one day and his judgment will be unquestionable. In Revelation 19 verses 1 and 2, we read the lyrics of a worship song that the people are singing in, in heaven and it goes like this. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. In heaven, God is worshipped for his perfect justice. He is always just and true. Secondly, we learn that hell is eternal. Jesus says, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. As we have already considered, none of us will ever be able to pay our debt of sin. Even if we tried, we would be sinning in other ways, racking up more and more debt. Jesus' point isn't that there is hope that one might be able to finally get right with God through good works. His point is that the debt is so large that the prison sentence may as well be eternal because there's no chance that it will be paid back. Thirdly, we learn that there is a way out, and this is, the, this is the glory of the gospel. If we are way over our heads in debt to God with no hope of paying him back, our only hope is that someone comes in and pays our debt. When I was 22 years old, I just graduated, and I barely had any money. And I picked up a parking ticket, which was very annoying, and it was very expensive. The next weekend was Mother's Day, and I wanted to go back and see my mum and give her a present. But I didn't have a credit card. This is back in the day where what you had is what you had, right? So I faced a hard choice. Pay my parking ticket and potentially miss the trip back to see my mum, or go on the trip anyway, buy her a gift, but then see the fine double as I delayed the payment. I expressed my concern to my housemate, Dave, who was a really good friend of mine. And then I decided that I would sleep on it. When I awoke in the morning, I went to open my bedroom door. And there was something slipped under the door. I was puzzled. I bent down and picked it up. And it was my parking ticket. 
And in scrawly handwriting, it said, your debt is paid, love, Dave. I was overwhelmed with gratitude and love for my friend Dave. For the rest of that week and into the weekend, I had a lightness and an optimism and a deep, a deep sense of joy. As great a friend as Dave is, there is a friend that far eclipses his love and generosity. After his death on the cross, Jesus says to every single human being on earth, it is finished. I have paid your debt. If you believe in me, when you stand before the judge of all the earth, you will have no charge against your name. You do not have to fear hell. Instead, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' offer is for everybody. He makes no distinctions. But there is one condition. His offer expires upon death, or, as we learned a few weeks ago in Peter's sermon, if Jesus comes back before we die, right? So it expires either on death or when Jesus comes back. The Bible is clear that when we die, the decision we made about Jesus on earth will be binding. When we die, it's too late to change our minds about Jesus. Hence, Jesus' loving warning in verse 58, make every effort to settle with him on the way. If you're listening today and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, do not miss Jesus' loving warning here. Do not wait until it is too late to get right with God. Jesus has done everything necessary for you to be fully cleared of your debt. All we do is place our faith in him. I used to volunteer for a charity back in the UK called Christians Against Poverty. It was an amazing, amazing charity and they specialized in getting people out of debt. Um, they were able to you know, get some of the credit cards, interest charges like written off. They were able to kind of talk to all the different creditors. Literally, the clients just gave them all of their mail and then they sorted through it and gave them a good budget to work towards to get out of debt. And in the, in the head office, in a city called Bradford, there was this big brass bell hanging up. And every time we received a call that another client had become debt-free, someone would ring the bell, and all the staff would jump up and go absolutely wild, celebrating this precious life that was now debt-free. If you want today to be the day that you make Jesus your Lord and Savior, then please, please do reach out to someone that you know here. And if you don't know anybody here, feel free to come and see me after the service because we'd love to celebrate with you and we'd love to pray for you. If you're still on a journey and you don't feel ready to follow Jesus just yet, keep asking questions. Keep digging down into scripture. Keep praying that God would illuminate your mind and heart. And if you're a believer today, how do we apply this text to our lives? Well, firstly, this passage should cause us to rejoice. We can sing and dance and shout because our debt has been fully paid. 
And we know the joy in life that comes with that. Secondly, we can have a renewed urgency in sharing the gospel. Romans 10, verse 13 to 15 says this, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We just never know how long our friends and family have left on this earth. We never know when Jesus is going to come again. That was the message that Peter brought a few weeks ago. So, in love, let's keep looking for opportunities to share Christ with our friends and family and loved ones. Thirdly, are there areas where you still haven't counted the cost of following Jesus? It is possible to be a Christian and still have areas of your life that you haven't submitted to Jesus. It could be your finances, your time, your sex life, or something else. But if you are holding back something from the Lordship of Jesus, I would gently challenge you to ask the Holy Spirit to highlight to you the areas that need to be brought under Jesus' rule. We can only obey God with the help of his Holy Spirit. So let's be asking for his help. The good news is that obeying God leads to life. It's so easy to miss this. Romans 6, 16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? The great lie of sin is that it offers us a better life than the one lived in obedience to God. But it's actually the reverse. Obeying Jesus brings the life in all its fullness that Jesus said he came to bring. Sin, on the other hand, will slowly and insidiously kill us if we continue in it. And lastly, fourthly, we can submit our minds to God. Let's see it as a positive if we are shocked and challenged by God's words because it gives us an opportunity to grow and to have our thinking more closely aligned with his truth. Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. He will not allow us to reshape or contort him into a Jesus of our own making. We must let Jesus be Jesus and submit all of our faculties to him. Why don't you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for the profound love that you have for us and the the way that you don't want us to be naive about these truths. Lord, thank you that you've loved us enough to warn us of, of the things that we've been talking about, God. I thank you so much, Father God, that you paid, that you paid our debt in full, um, a debt that we could not pay. We just want to praise you and worship you for that truth today, God. And I really pray that if there's those here who are still seeking, I thank you that you love to welcome uh, sincere um, seeking and sincere questions. And I thank you that you have the answers, Lord. Thank you that you say, knock and it will be opened, seek and you will find. So I just pray, Lord, for 
people who are uh, seeking after you right now, that you would reveal yourself, God, and that you would, would be found to be the glorious king that, that you are. Pray that in your name, Lord. Amen.